why are they then not ready, as ready as they should be? Why are they not trained up? Why do they not have the operators on the ground to be able to do that? You know, people keep saying, why don't the Defence Force come in and just put up the Bailey Bridges and solve the road problem from that point of view? Well, they don't have. What can ordinary South Africans do to mitigate the effects of extreme natural disasters? Well, joining me on the show are two ordinary South Africans who are doing extraordinary things. They are Grant Tyson and Ivor Rimmer. They are from Search and Rescue South Africa, SARSA, which is an entirely volunteer-led group of individuals with 4x4s who go into the most treacherous disaster zones in South Africa and elsewhere in the world to provide relief to those affected by extreme weather events. Grant Tyson, Ivor Rimmer, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank Good afternoon. you. So Ivor, let's start with you. Uh, for those people who might not be familiar with SARSA, Search and Rescue South Africa, what is this entity and why does it do its important work? SARSA's beginnings go back uh, 32 years ago where there was a, a call from the community and aircraft had gone down. The official search had been called off, but the, the family wanted to pursue it and they contacted a, a group of people who went along. They didn't find the aircraft. It was hundreds of miles from where they looked. But when those, that group came back, they thought, gee, we can do this better. Let's form a, a unit. Let's create a, a rescue unit that, that we can train and work and get ourselves sorted out. So small and humble beginnings, but it's, it's grown from there over the last 30 years. And we're happy and proud to say we represent it in six provinces now. All right. And... Essentially, what we're talking about is an entirely volunteer-led group of individuals. Most of them have big four-by-fours and some training in uh, search and rescue and, and health uh, emergency care as well. Uh, that, that is a pretty remarkable story. How many people are volunteering for SARSA and what is, what is required of them on an ongoing basis? Okay, we've got over 160 members dotted around the country. And really, there's, it's a passion to help others. But you mentioned the 4x4s. Yes, we call ourselves the rough terrain specialists. So we assist the authorities to go out where, where they can't necessarily get to. But with our training and our expertise and our equipment, we can get there. And I mean, uh, a good example, if you just take simply here in Johannesburg, we've got youngsters that will go out and ride their, their motorbikes on the mine dumps, which is great fun until you fall and break a leg. And then you dial one of the emergency ambulance services to come out, but they arrive at the base of the mine dump and their AMBO can't get into you. They will call on us. We will get you down the mine dump and then hand you over to the, the road ambulance at an appropriate point. So that's where our expert comes in, in the sort of special or rough terrain area. And that's where we specialize in. It's grown from that to involve a lot more things like communications, navigation, all the things that one needs out in the bush are part and part of the, the core skills that make up SARSA. All right, Grant. Well, let's turn to you now. You are the chairman of the Gauteng chapter of SARSA. And you, I think, were very involved with the recent floods that occurred in KZN in April, uh, which left an, a path of absolute devastation. I think it was about 460 people who unfortunately yeah. lost their lives there, many thousands of people displaced. Um, so could you tell us about the work of SARSA during these floods, which was really a time of acute crisis? Yes, thank you, David, and thank you for the opportunity. So when the first call came through, uh, we, we've, as, as I've had mentioned, we are a national organization, so we do have a representation down in KZN. And when the floods or the rain, the heavy rains hit on the, that first evening on the Sunday and then the Monday, they were already putting things together they just finished a training session the vehicles were all packed and the first call came through from a community member saying they need assistance and is somebody available to help <clears throat> during that heavy downpour they assisted of moving um, elderly across uh, the, the the flooded rivers other uh, flooded uh, roads and assisted people in getting out of vehicles that were stuck halfway across the roads etc cetera, etc cetera. so then they realized hang on there's a little bit more involved than just the two of them that needed assistance and assisting the local cpfs a call then went out uh, from Ivo's national coordinator who'd received a call from west uh, western cape disaster management 
Uh, Western Cape Disaster Management, we worked with before in the past. Uh, we know the, the management structure there, a, a gentleman by the name of Colin Diner, and he put the request to Ivor saying, we need assistance. KZN Disaster Management has requested the assistance of uh, Western Cape, and would you be able to put a team together? <clears throat> so from there, a team was put together from a national perspective. One, uh, we included most of the, in fact, all of the provinces, and we rolled out to the KZN area where we were then briefed and when we met at the KZN Disaster Management Center, we were briefed on the happenings of what was happening and the situation that was uh, unfolding as we as we were arriving. Um, the body counts were going up, the, the cost and the loss of damage, uh, the damage to the environment, to the, to the homes, to business, to property was escalating. And um, from there, we then uh, were deployed to, to the Virginia airport. Uh, at the Virginia airport, we were fully under the control of uh, the National Jock, which is under SAPS, South African Police Services, so South African Police Services Dive Unit, uh, the Search and Rescue Division of the Canine side. So all of those departments, we then became a supporter of or a force enabler. Uh, the, we arrived on, I think it was the, the Friday, the Friday, off, uh, Friday afternoon, it was a, the public holiday, it was Easter Friday, and we were then put to work to assist with the, the, the rescue operations. There were many, many, many different types of obviously organizations there, and what we bring to the table is being a force enabler, we like to provide the ability of communications, having um, uh, what we call our mobile command post uh, systems in place. We've got an incident management platform in place where we can log, track, and, and, and make sure we record everything that happens while out in the field. Um, the SAPs, obviously, from their perspective, then put us into teams. Multiple teams were put together, and on a daily basis, based on the call-outs that were received from the, the SAPs 10111 command center, we were then deployed into the region to go uh, look for bodies, essentially. Um, and unfortunately, it was more of a recovery than, recovery than rescue work uh, because of the, the type of incident and disaster that happened. It was more mudslides and heavy rain that created quite devastation, quite a lot of devastation with buildings and structural um, damage where it, it was all just mudslides. So it made it incredibly difficult to look for or to rescue anyone that was stuck under the mud. So <clears throat> during the course of those, the, the time that we were there, we were heavily involved with the supporting of the, the South African police and the other organizations that were all deployed there. Uh, we assisted with a whole lot of things, for example, the communication where between the helicopters and the ground, between the jock, which is where the Joint Operations Center was being run out of Virginia and the field, the tracking of the teams, the ability of knowing where all the, the team members were at any one time, having a record of all the members that were on the searches, keeping a track and a log of all of the volunteer organizations that also joined, and making sure all that admin paperwork in the background was kept together. So we played quite a vital role in, in, in keeping all of that together. Um, and very interesting outcomes during the course of that period. So in terms of the devastation there, I mean, I, I think it's truly astonishing to, to see some of the figures. There were 40,000 people displaced, there were 4,000 homes destroyed, and as I mentioned earlier, about 460 people lost their lives. Um, why do you think these floods were so devastating, Grant? And, you know, what, what were some of the, the things that you noticed in terms of the ability of the first responders to actually kind of deal with this crisis? Um, so a lot of the findings, what we what we seem to find was that, it, you know, firstly, it was close to home. We've 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 been on rescue missions in Mozambique, in Malawi, in Japan, in Philippines, but this was very different. This was on our doorstep. It was right in our own country, and it affected our own nation. So it was it was quite an emotional one in that sense, that you know we 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 literally driving down to our coastline to assist our fellow human beings and fellow South Africans uh, in the time of crisis. The big challenge that a lot of the 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 rescuers faced was <clears throat> the ability to get to the to the victims. 
Fortunately, we had quite a bit of air support from the South African Air Force, as well as from the SAPS Air Wing. They provided quite a few helicopters. They provided spotter airplanes to be able to search the coastlines and search up and down the rivers from the air, which is a great advantage for deploying resources at the right time in the right place. Some of the other challenges that were faced were a lot of false call-outs. So a call would come through from a community member saying, I've got 10 family members that are missing. Um, and we need assistance and they, and they need help and you need to come now. Uh, the challenge was that when the, 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 the resources arrived at that particular location, they found that it wasn't necessarily the case. But what they needed was access to food and resources and water because that, those communities were then cut off because the roads were washed away. There were big gorges between them and civilization, essentially. They were almost being put in an island that they couldn't access or get out or go and get help or go and buy food at shops, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so they were literally calling through to the emergency service saying, there's people that need rescuing, we need help in the hope that they would come and they would come with food and water and resources, et cetera. So that was one of the challenges, which then pulled resources away from the real need of going to look for missing people. So that seemed to be a little bit of a challenge. The other challenges, the, the lack of, when I say the lack of, there were lots of resources in terms of, of people and lots of volunteers, but um, the breadth of the, the, the official rescue organizations to have the ability to pull on a national pool of resources to go and assist and go and help with uh, a national disaster, which ended up being a national disaster. Initially, it was classified as a disaster within KZN, but the minute they started calling on all the other provinces, it then was announced and uh, the president announced that it was a national disaster. Uh, then you started seeing the army pull in, uh, the, the defense force had a bigger, a bigger presence. You had other organizations from Gauteng Emergency Services. You had other organizations from other provinces, Limpopo, the Free State. A lot more official services then were then deployed. By that stage, unfortunately, it wasn't too late because there was a lot of work still to be done. But if they'd had some of those resources earlier on, they probably would have had a bigger impact on, on recovering, potentially even saving a lot more people if they, had their, uh, if they were there a lot sooner. But then again, obviously, there's a lot of, of um, how would you say it, uh, not politics, but um, processes. Each province, each area has got its own standard operating procedures, which they need to abide by. And then they follow the correct channels to be able to request additional resources or equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So we were just very fortunate that Western Cape was called up. They called on us to come and assist. And we put the teams together and we arrived. And uh, we, 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 we believe we added a substantial amount of value. Um, and um, we hope we did our bit. Unfortunately, as volunteers, we can't stay the full period because those poor <laughs> firemen and police divers and canine guys were working very, very long hours. Um, Generally, there's normal procedures where you don't push it more than 10 to 14 days. These guys have been on it for weeks on end uh, to the point when we left, they were still working flat out, um, which is sad because you need to be able to rotate people. Um, but when you don't have a big pool of people to rotate with, it makes it difficult to rotate out and put fresh bodies in there because they become fatigued. They potentially can become part of the problem if they, if they don't rest. So it's, um, it's an interesting dynamic that uh, we witnessed as well. But it happens most places, not just in South Africa. In most countries, you, you have a similar situation. And how long was SARSA down in KZN for? So we were down for a week, uh, just over a week. We typically, when we've got uh, things in place, firstly, as volunteers, we've all got jobs to go back to. Um, and secondly, we try not push the teams longer than, than 10 days uh, because of fatigue. We generally, and I think if uh, Ivor can correct me, but I think there is a standard from an international perspective that you, you generally rotate your teams out within a certain time frame because of fatigue and tiredness and uh, having the ability to put fresh rescuers and resources in place. That's correct. I, I think one has to understand what the rescuers are actually doing there. So it's not that you are lazy or you get tired quicker, but you're dealing with quite mentally demanding stuff. I mean, you know, loading bodies into body bags on a daily basis is not something anybody does on a regular basis. So having to do it and be confronted. And I think one of the differences with, with KZN and the floods there, we've had rain before, we've had flooding before. But when we got to the point where the infrastructure starts getting wrecked, now let's not talk about urban infrastructure, but out in the rural areas, 
that little dirt road is the infrastructure. And when that dirt road is washed away, the few cars that were on it get washed away with it. So A, they've lost their transport, but even if they had transport, they've lost the road to get to it. And when you, if you walk down to where the shop was, the shop is gone and the next shop is that much further away. So getting food just as a basic source. So even if your house is not washed away, you now suddenly can't get food. And the, the, you know, the people out in those rural areas aren't sitting with pantries that are stocked up and can survive the next three weeks. They're getting food on a daily basis. They're buying the, the little packets of sugar. They're not buying bulk like we might go off and buy and not being able to get out or get anybody in. Likewise, people were reporting and saying, we've lost, you know, my uncle got washed away his uncle could well have been found already and be in a morgue and no one's identifying those bodies in the morgue because a they don't understand that that's the process you've got to go and identify the body but they're asking us to look for someone who might not be there he's already been found downstream being unidentified by the people around there and therefore one of the dilemmas they sat with was was sort of lots of bodies that were yet to be identified and even if i say right when you say them, have you been and checked well, how am I going to get there? Where is the morgue? How do I get there? How do I get from here to there to go? So, you know, Grant talks about sending the teams out and they're these multidisciplinary teams. So you've got one or two vehicles from us, one or two vehicles from police, one or two vehicles from fire and rescue that are going out together as a team. But all those vehicles were taking food out with them because that was the only thing going back right. out into the, the rural area. So, yes, we're looking and it's a body recovery. It's not really a rescue the the people you know water is such that if you're not pulled out of the water in five minutes you're, you're gone but you need to take food back out there at the same time so where we normally talk about three the three r's in the process which is rescue relief and then rehabilitation and we normally get involved in the rescue side here you blend the two together we're doing the rescue but we're also taking the relief back with us you need to take food out because those survivors still need to eat. They can't wait for two weeks while the, the government infrastructure gets into place to start getting food out to the rural areas and getting the, the defense force in to be able to manage that process. And we just don't have the infrastructure in the system anymore. I mean, the helicopters we had were used to ferry our people backwards and forwards to go into areas and do searching. And if you pulled a body out, you would hoist it up into the helicopter and they would fly it back. So you can't be flying food in and out with the helicopters. And likewise, when the politicians arrive, they all insist on wanting to go for a, a flight to go and see the area and assess the damage. There are not enough helicopters to do that. If we're busy using them to actually move people around and rescuers around, then sadly, the politicians must take a back seat. So I think also one of the things that I noticed was Asitle Zikilala, the, the Premier of KZN, uh, he actually managed to get some uh, water uh, to, to his home. Um, and a lot of people were quite indignant about that. I mean, I'd like to talk about just the, the capacity of the state uh, to deal with crises of this nature and to respond to disasters. So obviously there was this legislative action of this state of disaster. Um, but you are working a lot with uh, SAPs, with the SNDF, with uh, various other uh, volunteer groups as well. I mean, do you think that we have the readiness and the capacity to deal with disasters of this scale? If I could answer that, I think the people on the ground had the passion and the will to want to help. What they lack is the support from, and I'm going to refer to it as head office, um, to be able to do that. You know, the, the, the way we keep up to date is we train and we do training and we do training exercises and scenarios and all those kind of things. That's what helps us get in to do this. But people have seen the need or have not seen the need to do that. So the, the SAPS people in, in search and rescue, you know, they're just starting to come in. But we, we, we should have been doing training for the last 20 odd years because suddenly you get caught short now. And it, it's not the people on the ground. They want it. They want to do it. But they're also sometimes working too hard with normal day to day stuff because the units have got smaller and smaller as budgets have been constrained. So. Once again, let's general, generalistic refer to it as head office or cutting back on the budgets. And we haven't got budget for an exercise and you're too busy doing that. And, you know, go back a year, year ago in KZN when we had the riots, um, all leave was cancelled for all these people. So they, they were, all their leave was cancelled for the last six months. And now suddenly they're confronted with something like this where, yes, you get in and you keep going there month after month, trying to get the infrastructure right and the systems going they are still human beings. They need to take leave. They need to recharge their batteries. 
And if we can do nothing else but support those people on the ground with us as the force multipliers to bring in that kind of resource and help them, then they just get that feeling they're not just doing it on their own. It's, it's bad enough you're battling the elements, but you don't want to be battling the bureaucracy at the same time. Yeah, many of these personnel are risking their lives, uh, their physical security um, to, to perform these acts of service. So uh, I definitely think we don't want to be uh, painting everyone in the state with the same brush, but definitely there seems to be a leadership vacuum uh, at the top of very kind of poor management uh, structures as well. Grant, what are your thoughts on, on the capacity of the state? So in terms of the capacity, what, what worried me and what scared me more than anything else is when we were doing a briefing in the morning there and you had all the resources and all the members that were involved in the search all standing around in a circle listening to the instant command, dishing out the orders for the day. If you took a look around, and I'm, apart from the SARSA team, if you took a look around at the members that were passionately involved on the ground there, I would say they were probably in excess of 48, 49 years old, gray beards, gray hair, and there was no youth. Where was the youth of the system? Where is the depth that should, be, should have been created where young rescuers are coming up, they're being assisted, guided, trained, and funding has been put together to bring this along? Whether it's a canine resource, whether it's a human being, whether it's vehicles, boats, helicopters, whatever the case may be, there was no depth in what I looked, what I could see in that type of scenario. And it, it's, it's worrying because what happens when all those gray-haired old men toodle off and retire and they're too old to actually go out and pull bodies out or go and dig and go do whatever they need to? Where's the youth going to come from? Where, where are they? And that to me was a major worry um, as we don't seem to be having that depth within the, the, the government services. So right now, can we, will we handle a national disaster? Absolutely. You've got force multipliers like us coming on board and helping and assisting. What's going to happen in the future? That to me is a bigger worry. Yeah, and I think we need more young people, civic-minded people to make that sacrifice that, that the older generation has made. Ivo? We also need people in the system um, to do that. They've got to be trained up. You know, one draws the analogy back to an ESCOM. We, you know that we have to take a power station, has to be taken offline and maintained and serviced or whatever, whether it's your car, whether it's a power station, that process. And there has to be enough capacity in the grid to live without that one. Whereas we've just run everything flat out, unclip breaks, and then we fix it. And that's not the way to, to run your power grid, but it's also not the way to run your rescue services. We've got enough people to do the job, but who have we spent time? Some of those sage old gray heads should be training up the next people coming along, because as Grant says, when they've all retired in 10 years' time, who's going to do it then? I would suggest that while there were enough helicopters flying around KZN, um, if you'd asked for a helicopter anywhere else in the country, you would have been surprised because they weren't available, because the, the ones we had that could fly were all in KZN. Now, that shouldn't be the case that we lose everything. And yet, when we've wanted to send teams overseas, ah, oh, but what happens if something happens in Africa? We need to have enough people. But we need to go overseas because we will learn and experience things there that we can bring back. So when it happens on our doorstep, we know what to do about it. And that's very much part of, of these processes. You know, why do we send teams overseas to go and assist there? Haven't we got enough trouble here? When the real trouble comes here and what we learned in the Philippines, what we learned in Mozambique, what we learned in Malawi, we put into practice in KZN. If we hadn't been there, we'd be doing it for the first time. And that's not the right place to do it. Right. Well, Grant, one of the organizations that I think has risen to prominence in recent years for situations just like the one that we're discussing is Gift of the Givers. They've also been very active overseas, uh, going to disaster areas, earthquakes, and, and so on. And uh, you know, I think this is a really an excellent example of this kind of bottom-up initiative. Uh, MTL Suleiman is former medical doctor, gave up quite a successful career there to, uh, to launch this initiative and, and has had amazing success. And uh, I interviewed Tony Leon on the podcast a, a while ago, and he mentioned that uh, when the government put together this fund, almost like this uh, relief fund, and called for donations, uh, people said, no, 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 don't, don't go anywhere near that. It could be uh, embezzled. Uh, the funds could disappear down a, an ANC cadre's pocket. But when uh, people wanted to give, their the first port of call was gift to the givers. 
Um, could you explain what is your relationship with Gift of the Givers? What, what role did they play? And feel free to mention any other uh, organizations that, that also played a part in the flood relief. So our first engagement with, uh, with Gift of the Givers was in 2019 with uh, Cyclone Idea, where we assisted and we had a team go out with them to Mozambique to assist with uh, rescue work and humanitarian aid distribution. Uh, we were quite successful in that space and we spent, I think, 14 days with the teams and uh, assisted quite quite a bit of um, uh, distribution of, of food in the excess of 60 odd tons of food we treated with with the gift of the givers doctors and and volunteers in excess of 1800 patients I think 20 babies were delivered so there was a lot that was done and since then we've stayed quite close with them where we interact with them on a regular basis we do regular checks of equipment with them we do. Um, we, we 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 try to get involved in multiple sets of training. So if we're having an interesting training session, like a swift water training, they would come along, or we would join them in one of their training sessions. Bearing in mind that majority of their members are also volunteers, volunteers from fire departments, from local EMS, from from government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, it's a group of people. And and Ivor's got a famous saying. He says. When you arrive on a scene and there's a situation, you don't want to be going along and saying, hi, my name is Grant. You want to say, hello, how are you? Because you know the person, you've worked with them, you've trained with them. Whether he's from SARS or whether he's from Gift of the Givers or whether he's from local EMS, from Chuani Fire, whatever the case is, the opportunity is to work together. And Gift of the Givers, an unbelievable organization. And if you see what they do and how they contribute to humanity, irrespective of race, color, creed, religion, country, they don't care. If you need help and you stick your hand up and say, I need help, he will help you. And the gift of the givers is a phenomenal in that way. And it's, it's a common, it's a known fact that if money gets given to them, it goes out to the relevant parties plus, not just the amount that was donated, but so much more. And it's not just money, it's, it's resources, they'll build hospitals, it's drilling boreholes, where there's places that don't have water. So we're very fortunate and privileged and honored to be working with them and have the opportunity to work with them and to get requested when, when needed. So we will always stand by them and assist them when needed as volunteers. I think Grant used the word privilege to work with him, and I, th I think it is. But one has to understand the way they operate is they can, they can move quickly. So... They, they're not tied up with bureaucracy and all the rest. So you say you need something, you get it. Uh, there, there's, you know, it's almost like, it's not just a case of money's no object, but there's no infrastructure problems in the way, or there's no administrative burdens that you've got to go through. When we needed something in Mozambique, we got it. When we needed anything here, they've got a, a, a rescue cache down in Natal. When our team got there and they said, geez, we need chainsaws, we need this, we need that one call and they said come and collect whatever you need you're not even signing for it you, you're just helping yourself to what to got and they kind of work on the principle that if you take something out almost don't bring it back give it to someone in that community that can carry on using it uh when we went to mozambique we we took all sorts of equipment with us generators and all the rest and then left them all there with the right people um who could carry on using them it's no use bringing them back and putting them back in the store they will get more in the store but they are ready and they're prepared and, and they are anticipating these kind of natural disasters and they they're the only ones that are anticipating the government should be anticipating these natural disasters whereas the government are just going on the day-to-day -day business and saying well if it breaks we'll try and fix it you know sort of a la esca whereas when you have a natural disaster like that you can't suddenly go out to tender and say we would like to buy 100 chainsaws let's go through a fair and you know tender process they need to be in the store and I think the Defence Force is battling with that at the moment. The, the whole reason you have squadrons of helicopters is you can't go and buy helicopters now. You know, like at, uh, you, you need to have them already. You, if you want peace, prepare for war. Um, you, the, the, the things that you need in a natural disaster or a war are things that take time to procure and choose and, and get the right things. Like And gift to the givers are just going ahead there and doing it. And I, having watched them and worked closely with them, I can say every cent that anybody gives them is being spent in the right place, whether it's now or in the future. And just the mindset is so right and the keenness to help and the keenness to have us help. And I mean, I, I know Dr. Suleiman refers to us as his, his rescue component. And that's, that's you know, great accolades to us when he says things like that. But he backs that up with whatever you guys need, ask and you'll get it. 
what you mentioned there, Ivor, was you know the mindset. And I think you can have systems and structures in place, management structures, but if you have a, a culture of excellence of service, that is the majority of of, of what gets you to that to that point of, yeah. of being able to to have that capacity. Grant? Yes, I was going to say and add to that. In in KZN as a typical example, if we needed airbags or we needed uh, come-alongs or, or or winches, no matter what we needed, he would make a plan. And if he didn't have it in the store, he would arrange to get it bought and delivered to us. Whether it was water, whether it was food, whether it was equipment, or whether it was resources, it would it would arrive. And it was almost magically arrived. You can say, I need this and this and this guaranteed either within the hour or within the day that would arrive on your doorstep and ready to utilize out in the field and then to be as Arba mentioned to be left out in the field for the reason for the use of the, the communities and i think we need to emulate that philosophy of readiness in the states as well um and i think there are many reasons why uh, that, that isn't in place Ivor, you wanted to come in there i think we just mustn't also forget the the readiness of south africans as a as a people so here we have this disaster on our doorstep. We as the, the rescuers go in and are there, and, and Grant can talk more about this, but when they needed something in the team there, they spoke to the local community and the community just provided. I mean, the, the, the people, you know, Grant, what did you call them? Your, your Durban Angels or your Durban North yeah. Angels. You said, we, we need this. The, the dogs are taking strain. We need to find a vet somewhere and get that. They just went off and came back with it. One doesn't know who paid for that. Did they get it sponsored? Did they pay for it? It doesn't matter. You needed it. You got it. And, you know, simple little things like you need a place to stay. The NSRI made a place in their headquarters. And just when they got there, there's 50 mattresses ready and waiting for you. You know, you're not sleeping in the ground. There, There's a, a washing machine and a tumble dryer that you can wash your clothes. It wasn't there before, but it's there now. You need it. And the Durban community, if I could look at it that, and probably the greater... KwaZulu community, as all South Africans, were only too willing to step up and be counted when it came to, to helping and assisting. It, it's, and, you know, it's nice to work within that kind of environment. And I think as South Africans, we are very resilient. We deal with so much on an ongoing basis and we mutter a lot and we moan a lot about the structures and all the rest. But when push comes to shove, people roll up their sleeves and they do. Yeah, and absolutely. I think but that, that, that resilience is important, but I think readiness is also important so that you're not in this reactive mode. Absolutely, and, and, and it's uh, not for the Durban community to be ready. They, they, you know, we, we're not asking every household in South Africa to stockpile 10 blankets and a first aid kit in case of a national disaster. That's what we have structures for. That's what we paid massive budgets to disaster management, to Department of Health, to defense, to police and everything. Why are they then not ready, as ready as they should be? Why are they not trained up? Why do they not have the operators on the ground to be able to do that? You know, people keep saying, why don't the Defence Force come in and just put up the Bailey bridges and solve the road problem from that point? Well, they don't have. You know, we, we've, we've cut back on all those budgets over the years and the 100 years of peace that we're going through. And now when you push comes to shoving, and yet one of the primary tasks of the Defence Force is that um, support in a disaster role. It, it's not, they're not there just to fight wars. They're there to assist. That helicopter fleet is there to assist with search and rescue, to pull airmen or pull sailors off maritime boats, offshore, et cetera, et cetera, that comes in. That's what it's there for. So to be letting it slide is, is not just negligent. It, it's actually catastrophic. So Grant, uh, I've mentioned the dogs and you work very closely with the SAPS canine unit. Uh, how does that relationship work and why are the animals so important in, in your work? So what a canine can do versus what a human can do in, in sniffing out and searching for, for missing bodies or, for, or buried bodies, uh, for that fact, is unbelievable. That nose on that canine is absolutely phenomenal. The sad problem is what we were led to believe that all 16 canine dogs that were down in KZN was the entire country's complement of, of uh, search dogs. Um, and same same story there. There was no depth, and I look at those canines as a fellow rescuer. And unfortunately, when we when we lost Leah, one of the canines, in an in unfortunate incident where a a very highly qualified SAPS diver also lost her life, and the canine went in after it, it came to light that some of these canines are working beyond their retirement time. So they've meant to retire already, and yet these 
poor canines are working, but they didn't do it because they were forced to. They loved that work. They absolutely pushed it to the to the literally to the end. So working with canines is very uh, it's an it's an honor for us because we get to see the way they operate. We also train with them sometimes as well to make sure that we understand how to operate with them and how to be a flanker and what to do and what not to do in in certain situations. But watching those those canines operate in those fields in in that debris and the rubble. And when they can pick up the scent of a body, when us as a human being, you've got that smell of death throughout the valley, throughout this gorge that had been washed away, to see that canines pick up a spot and, and you start digging then you're guaranteed to find something, it's phenomenal. So um, it's, it's great to work with, with them. And we look, we look to them as, as fellow rescuers. So they're part of the team. And it's always great to work with um, the canine. Yeah, and unfortunately, that officer also lost her life. What was the story there? So, you know, I, I got a bit frustrated sometimes when you hear in the news and the media that, oh, no, it was probably because they were badly trained and things. Absolutely nonsense. She was one of the most qualified uh, dive rescuers, and I think she was the only, the only black female dive rescuer qualified to that level in the South African Police Force. So it was what just her name? her name was Busi. So it was just a very unfortunate incident. And it's a dangerous environment that you're working. Bearing in mind, you're working in a disaster area where there is stuff that's not normal. The boulders are 10 times the size because the, the rivers have been cleared and washed away. Um, and unfortunately, she was walking along a riverbank and you couldn't see it, but underneath, the river had washed away from underneath. So it caused a little bit of a cliff overhang. And while searching on the bank, looking into the water for, for possible survivors or possible bodies to recover, et cetera, the bank collapsed and she went in and it happened to be close to a weir, which then obviously sucked her down into the pipes that feed the water to the other side. The canine handler saw this, he reacted and shouted. The canine then obviously bolted, went in straight after to see if he could get to her and they were both pulled under, unfortunately. So um, very sad, a very sad event indeed. And it was a massive loss to the rescue community to lose a fellow rescuers um, in Canaan and be between uh, Leah and Bussy. So a very sad note, but there is a bit of a happy side story to it. And, and if I may, there was a little puppy that was picked up in town on the way back from one of the, the, the calls. And that puppy was cleaned up it had all its uh, injections. It had a little, the, the vet gave it a bath and it, the, the canine handler that lost his canine um, took on this new little puppy and said, um, this is what it's, uh, it's going to be his new canine. And he named it after Bussy and Leah. So very heartwarming story indeed. And when I did share that story on our route, on our trip back from KZN, I can guarantee you there was not a dry eye in any of those vehicles driving back. So, because uh, it, it, it does, it pulls on the heartstrings, unfortunately, especially when you, you lose someone close to you. And little, little puppy, Bushy Lee, is probably the, the happiest puppy in KZN right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that's a beautiful illustration of the sacrifices that people are prepared to make for others. And I think if we can, yeah. uh, if we can instill that as, a, as part of our civic culture and civic responsibility, I think that South Africa can achieve great things. Um, yeah. But now, Ivo, what about the the sacrifices as well? Not just in terms of your physical safety, but you know, emotionally, uh, it must be quite difficult also to balance all of these obligations with your normal life, with your professional and your your personal commitments. Maybe you could speak you know, there, to that. There's, there's, there's three aspects to it. There's you have a family, you have a career and a, and a job, and then you have your passion, which in our case is the rescue. And those rescuers are out there and it's literally digging amongst the mud and the rubble looking for bodies. And when you find a body, that's a success. And you, you get it out, get it in, zip it up into a body bag and, and ship it out. You know, that, that's what you're doing. But nobody is, is trained and designed to haul out five bodies a day on an ongoing basis like that. And one has to watch the team very closely. And you need to be a close-knit team that you can look after each other emotionally and it's mentally, I suppose, to, to be able to handle that process. And um, we've done a number of debriefing sessions with the team that went so that we can look after. And we've had that in place for the last 30 years, that if you, not every rescue you go on, do you need to have a debrief, but there are some that are particularly difficult to have to deal with. And we don't want people to be suffering with issues later on. So uh, we, we try and manage that and you keep a lookout and, and you look after those people. 
um, but we're alive very much. We're a family. So even that, that team that was down there living together on the mattresses laid out on the floor in the, the NSRI headquarters, that's one big happy family. And you need to look out for each other. And you have a particularly hard day that day. Or you were part of that team that, that watched Buzzy go in. You watched Leah dive in after her and you had to help getting their bodies out. Now, it's very difficult and different to, to loading somebody else's body as to loading one of your own. And uh, that takes its toll. But likewise, you've got a family back here. You know you are safe there. Your family don't know what you're doing and they don't know where you are. So they're also taking strain. So one needs to be able to, to talk back to the family. I mean, when, when our team were in Haiti, there was a, a follow-on earthquake that, that was registered. Of course, it was all over CNN and the BBC all over. And we needed to frantically get a message back to South Africa to say, the South Africans were okay. It didn't affect us. You know, what, what you're seeing there is, is sort of sensationalized, and I'm not knocking them, but there was an earthquake. But we had to very quickly let know, and Grant had exactly the same situation in KZN, because the news suddenly came out, one of the rescuers had drowned. And you had to quickly put it out on our group. And we have a group back here that talks to the families and the next of kin and, and the spouses and things like that. Say, it's okay, guys. It, it wasn't one of us. Tragic as it was for the person that it was, it wasn't one of our SARSA members, because people always think the worst. What about the logistics of this? Ivo, you're the national coordinator. Uh, how do you fund your activities? How do you get word out about the work that you're doing and get people to support you? Okay. What, what is what is going on behind the scenes there? You know, we, we always say to prospective members, don't worry, there's no membership fees, but then they spend the rest of their life paying because everything you've got, your uniform, your vehicle, your radios, your equipment in your vehicle is provided by you. But there's a whole bunch of unit equipment that needs to be the, the mobile control post that ended up running the, 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 the relief operation. That's provided by the unit. And to do that, we raise funds. So there's two ways we can do that. One, we as members go out and we do various sporting events. So if you think in Johannesburg, there's the ride Joburg, you know, the, the 94 kilometers around Joburg, close all the streets, deal with the members of the public. So it's good training from our point of view to do that, but that's how we raise money. Likewise, you will also go to big business and say, we need money to keep going. So we look for sponsorships all the time. We would, the, the teams that went down to KZN and whether you went from Limpopo province or the Cape province or Free State or Gauteng or Mpumalonga, you all had a long way to drive. So we would like to be able to pay your fuel and your tolls to get there and get back. What you're paying for is the wear and tear on your vehicle and your tires and, and all the rest that goes like it. And I'm pleased to say that we do have friends out there. When I was putting together the, the sort of a budget, if you want to call it, but I quickly drew up a spreadsheet and said, if I take X number of vehicles from here, here and here, and we average out the fuel cost for those vehicles to travel that distance, and what are the tolls cost to get there, I initially came up with the first batch, we came up with a figure of 105,000 rand. And one phone call to DHL, and two hours later, that money was sitting in our bank account. Um, they didn't quibble about the amount. I asked for 105, I got 105. If I'd asked for 150, I would have got 150. And so many other companies and organizations followed on from that. And as we asked for money, it came. So we managed to be able to pay for people to go and to do that. And, you know, you, if, if you take everybody on the last night, if you take them out to the local steakhouse and give them a decent meal, um, is that wasting money or splitting out? No, you know, that's the least you can do for those people. If you can stop on the way back at the, the one stop or the ultra city or whatever it is and buy them a breakfast on the way home, just to keep them awake that they're not falling asleep. It's not, you know, that's not whining and dining. That, that's literally part of keeping the team happy and alive. And we are fortunate we've got, but with COVID coming in the last two years, there were no events. So we lost a huge revenue stream across the country because we're doing events in Johannesburg, in Pretoria, in Nelspruit, in Cape Town, in Free State. And all those events stopped. So that, that was a, a difficult time for us to go through. You start sort of looking at you, you know, counting the pennies now, not spending the pounds. But we'd like to get it going and, and we'd like as much support as we can get I would like to think that if you gave money to us, you can be as, as comfortable as giving money to give to the givers, that it, it's getting spent in the right place. We can account for all our money and we're not wasting it and spending it. I mean, certainly not buying me a new house or a new car or anything like that. So uh, it's going to the right places because we're doing it for the passion. 
we're not in this for the money. You know, there's no salary that comes with the job. And Grant, do you think that something like this could be professionalized where volunteers actually become professional rescuers and that's privately run and administered and governed? If you speak to my wife, she would absolutely agree with you. Um, and if you uh, speak to many of the spouses of all the rescuers, and we had the opportunity of being professional rescuers, would we do it? Absolutely. We'd jump in both feet, feet first, and we would all become, uh, be part of a part of our, our livelihood now uh, and make it a career. Would it be different if we were being paid for it? I don't know. We still do it because we're passionate about helping others and, and stepping up and being able to do some good. And there's no better feeling or better high than finding a person or, or finding a kid and giving that kid back to a to a parent or even just the body to a family for closure it's a good feeling inside and i think that's what the guys run on if we were paid to do it i think that we would be a bonus absolutely but um it's not a, a requirement if you can call it that would we be able to professionalize this and make it into i think we'd be a formidable force out there and if uh, saza was a professional organization we all worked for full time I most certainly think we could make it work. How we would go and do that is another challenge, but um, uh, you most certainly could. You get them all over the world. There's professional rescue organizations all around the world that are full, full, fully-fledged businesses. So there's no reason why we can't. What Grant says is correct. It, it's, it's a matter of timing, and it, it, it potentially could end up in something like that. You know, whether you're a policeman, a doctor, a teacher, a nurse, a firefighter, there's that, it's a vocation. You just, by professionalizing, we're saying you're going to get paid. And I think people have left those organizations and gone and joined a security company or a private ambulance service because they want to do the same job without the bureaucracy and the sort of ceilings imposed on them by all the constraints of, of the government. We always thought those were things the government dealt with. When they've worked in private practice, you're only going to look at ambulance services, they've worked very well and very efficiently. And there's a lot of people who are passionate about the work that they do. The medics that are out there are passionate about doing it, but they're now being looked after and they're being appreciated by a company. Uh, I think it's just all about how you run the organization. And once again, I think the people on the ground running these organizations, if I look at SAP's rescue, fantastic people with that passion. The frustrations just come from the top down. So Grant, earlier we were bemoaning the lack of young men who are involved in this. If uh, you're a strong, young, active guy and looking for an alternative source of meaning, perhaps, uh, and something to devote your energy to, how do you get involved in something like this? What is required and, and what are the first steps? The first step is make inquiries, go onto the website, have a look what we're all about, or any of the organizations, whether it's us, whether it's Mountain Club, whether it's any uh, uh, rescue type organization out there, there aren't many of them. And it, come along, have a listen. We, ha we have as an organization, we have two intakes a year. We have one in the beginning of the year and one in June. In fact, we've got one coming up at the end of this month where we do an, almost like an induction, tell the people what it's all about, show them uh, under the under the blankets and say this is actually what it's really about it's not just you, you don't come along to something like this to be the hero or to to get fame and recognition and things like that it's yeah you here because you're passionate and you want to be able to help and I think I think it's there's there's no better feeling in any 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 country or any place or any organization as to volunteer and to give of yourself and give back your little bit to the community um, it's a it's very satisfying and it's come along and have a have a listen and see if it's if it's something you'd like to get involved in and we we believe that we're a family so like i've said it's not a golf club we don't expect any fees or anything from you because you're going to be putting in enough time and effort and your own funding of your own equipment to to warrant um any any fees that would ever be charged but um it's about that family and sticking together and that family going out and helping others other families that need help in the time of need and having the ability to, to make sure that you trained enough and you've got the right skills and that you trust the person you're working with uh, to say, you can tie that rope. I'm now going to hang on, the end, uh, hang on the end of that rope down the side of a mountain. And I trust you to do that. You don't do that with a total stranger. So you come along, train with us. You go through the whole process and you end up loving it. And you end up staying too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do quite a bit of indoor climbing. And often at the indoor climbing gym, I see the mountain rescue guys doing their drills and it's yeah. it does look uh, like quite intensive training but then again it is 
a, an awesome responsibility as well. And just as we bring this conversation to a close, I have a, I mean, I think what I take away from this conversation is the importance of community-led initiatives. I often say that no politician is coming to rescue you. And in, in the context of our discussion, that's very literal. Um, but, you know, I think we need to build the South Africa that we, that we want to see thrive and, and prosper. And part of that involves taking uh, safety and, and rescue very, very seriously because lives literally are at stake. But what are your closing thoughts on the importance of, of community-led initiatives like SASA? Very definitely. And I don't think people join these different organizations because they're trying to change the world. They join because they want to make a little difference in their little sphere. And, and whether you join a round table or a rotary or any organization, that, that's important, I think, part of the giving back. And as South Africans, we need to learn that. And I think there's, a, there's potentially a generation that don't understand that giving back process. And we need to, to try and rectify that because we're the ones that are going to make a difference. You know, the, the old saying, it, it takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to keep that child safe and to be able to look after it. And, the, the, you know, and we see that coming across when literally you go into villages and you're looking for lost children. They're ready to come and help. What we're doing is providing some infrastructure and some expertise, but you've got lots of willing hands that are there. And I think we need to nurture that because if you wait for they, when are they coming to fix this? When are they coming to do that? There is no they. The government is not going to come and help in all these things. We are the ones that are going to make a difference. We, the citizens, and we live in a beautiful country. We've got to keep it safe for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. Ivor Rimmer, Grant Tyson, I wanted to thank you very, very much for joining me on the show. We will put links to all of the resources that we mentioned, how to get involved. We'll put that in the show notes below. But I wanted to thank you very much and wish you strength in building and continuing this excellent work. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time.